It wasn't until 2015 when the World Health Organization announced that red and processed meat were now classed as group two and group one carcinogens that we started to look at the diet. I remember, and it's really why I kind of went plant-based, my dad being angry when that news came out. He felt like that we had just had this veil over our faces and that we had been lied to. Who knows if that actually caused the cancer, but it certainly is not going to help you after having that diagnosis, right? We all as an immediate family went predominantly plant-based from there. Working in radio and having this journalism background, I'm like, I need to start talking about this on a public scale. That's Carly Bodrug, and this is The Proof Podcast. friends, welcome back. As always, glad to be here with you. I hope you're doing well. If you are tuning in for the first time, thank you for joining us. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and author. Today we are going to jump straight into it, an episode dedicated to eating more plants. That's right, eating more plants. Carly Bodrug, or Plant You, as you may know her by on the socials, joins me to chat about tips for cooking plant-based meals, how to make bland foods taste better, using scraps to save money and reduce food waste, kitchen equipment, transitioning to a plant-based diet smoothly, and of course, the ins and outs of her new cookbook, Plant You, which is out February 15th, a super informative and practical episode. So here we go. This is Carly Bodrog talking all things plants. Please do enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. 
And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Carly, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here. I can't tell you, I've been listening to this podcast for years, so it's pretty surreal for me to be sitting across from you, at least virtually today. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've certainly been looking forward to this one too. I have a feeling knowing your personality and just getting to spend five minutes with you before we uh, hit record, I think this is going to be a fun one. Not that all of them aren't fun in their kind of own way, but you do have a, a particularly upbeat, fun personality, which is is no doubt a huge reason why all of your work is is so popular. There's a lot of different places we could start here. And I thought it would be nice just to understand how you're feeling. You've exploded on social media over the past few years, particularly the last 12 months. And now... What, we're a couple of days out before your first book is published? What's going on in your mind? Tell me, tell me how you're feeling. Honestly, I am experiencing a lot of imposter syndrome and <laughs> am very overwhelmed, excited. It's like a melding of all the feelings. But definitely that, like somebody told me the other day, they're like, you're at almost like a million followers on Instagram. And I'm like, who like we like it just it it happened so rapidly especially this past i guess 6 months that i have i don't think i've wrapped my mind around the fact that that many people are engaged in the content that i'm putting out day in and day out and it's a little weird to think about to be honest so i'm just taking things day by day right now and i'm am so grateful at the end of the day that i'm in the position i am in and the book is finally here because as you know that process takes a long long time yeah i know the feeling i can imagine you're thinking what me a chef a cook my recipes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm assuming that that since you got your book deal, your your days must have been very very organized. You know, I know how much time goes into creating content for social media, and then throw on top of that, you have no doubt some deadlines and timelines with regards to getting things organized for this book. And there's so much recipe testing, so much goes into that. How have you? been sort of structuring your days, managing your time 
to, to give the necessary attention to everything that you're doing on social media, but then also to be sort of ticking those boxes with the book and giving the updates to your publisher that they're no doubt wanting, and then also carving out enough time for yourself and exercise and relationship and family and all that stuff. So my days are kind of all over the place, I guess, kind of like my mind right now. But I would say by default that I am not an organized person. And I guess that kind of falls in line with my creative personality. Like it's a bit of a mess over here right now, but that's okay. I think that's okay. I take things kind of day by day, roll with the punches. Always my priority is carving out enough time where I can be creative, stay up to date on trends and continuously, consistently put out quality content. Like I'm very much from a perspective of being an entrepreneur now, everything that comes first kind of comes down to me being able to have a regular schedule of putting out content. So everything else kind of takes a back burner to that. Of course, when I was writing the book, things looked a little different. I wasn't even creating video content at that time. So it certainly wasn't as demanding. You'll remember it was uh, infographics. Like those were the hot thing on Instagram. So to throw together a recipe infographic was a lot quicker than delving into creating recipe videos and the testing and the angles that you want from that and then following up the editing. So I would say like, 60% of my days are spent kind of creating content, consuming content. So I know kind of what's, what's hot on the platforms and then executing that. And that rest of the 40%, it's kind of like what you talked about, the administrative demands of putting a book out there and going back and forth with the publisher and all of that. But it's, it's nice because it's like different every day, right? Yeah. And are you, are you kind of doing most of that from home? 100%. So in Canada, we have actually been in for the better part of two years in some form of a lockdown, which has been awful on one hand, but on the other hand of it, with this whole preparation of the book and... I had a lot of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> we honestly haven't been able to travel, haven't been able to go into large group settings. So really like my weekends and my weekdays and my weeknights have been really spent on Plant You, which has its positives and negatives, I suppose. Yeah, that's, I mean, something I get asked all the time because I work a lot from home now, particularly since COVID is how do you manage that sort of ability to kind of switch off, you know, and, and create a distinction between working and sort of being at home. Is that something you've kind of had to play around with? I, again, am not the best at this and I need <laughs> to develop healthier boundaries around work, but I try to turn my phone off at 8 p.m. and leave it off until like 7 a.m. in the morning after I've gotten up and done some sort of morning routine. And that gives me at least a little bit of space from the work because as you know, no matter, you can always as an entrepreneur be doing more. Like there's always going to be things to do, especially when you have a platform on social media, there's always questions coming in. There's always people messaging you. And I'm the type of person, like, I feel so grateful. I don't know how I got here with the amazing community that I have, but every single message that comes in, I'm like, oh, I need to answer this. So it's difficult to shut that off, but I think it's essential for mental health, right? To at least have some little boundaries. Yeah. I, 
I, I mean, I think your dedication to your community is the reason it is growing so fast and is sort of, you know, a testament to, to everything that you've been doing. I myself sometimes hear this kind of rhetoric of, oh, scrolling is bad. And, and, and I find myself scrolling and I start to feel guilty, but then I do think, you know, I'm reading questions from people and I'm looking at other profiles and seeing how people are engaging with that. And so it does get a little confusing to navigate because you begin to ask yourself, am I wasting time here or is this a valuable use of my time? I always have this internal battle about that. And at the end of the day, when you're a content creator, things are changing so rapidly on social media. We look at like a new medium like TikTok, right? I remember when that came up, I was very intimidated by it, kind of resisted it the first few months that it was blowing up. Then I'm like, okay, I got to get on here. So I spent probably a few hours at least scrolling the platform to see what the heck was going on and then was able to start testing content. But you kind of need to be immersed in it in order to stay up to date on what is going on and what people are engaging with. It's like a double-edged sword. The baked feta pasta, did the baked feta pasta reach Australia? It's this huge trend on TikTok. Like, to be to keep up to date with like recipes that are kind of going off on these platforms and then to hop on and like make a veganized version it's like you need to be on social media in some way every day so you can't like completely shut off but i hope once the book is out like i can maybe take a couple of days completely off social media which i feel like i haven't probably done in four or five years, yeah. which is ooh, like a little cr- cringy, right? <laughs> to think that your mind is like, you're living almost, for me, I'm living almost more on social media than I am in real life, especially the past two years, given the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You'll work it out. You've been working on something very, very important that's going to impact a lot of people. So I think it's been worth it, but at least you're aware of that going forward. I find that interesting because you have you know, blown up on TikTok. You have millions of followers across TikTok and Instagram. And so at the very beginning, when you first started looking at it, you were a little intimidated. Were you questioning whether you could use it successfully like others? Oh, 100%. Like I was on there. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't know if I should bother. I was looking up like trend predictions for TikTok of whether I wanted to invest my time in it. And I was looking at, you know, you, you go on there and you're like seeing people with millions of followers other than you. And you're like, it's too late. Like, what's the point? It, the, the point where I could blow up has already passed. I'm entering it. At, and like, thank goodness I started when I did. And I tell that to everybody who wants to get into like blogging or talking about what they're passionate about. It, I b- truly believe that it's never too late and there's never been more opportunity than right now, especially for short video content across platforms. Yeah, I agree. If you're passionate about something, go for it because your mind will it'll play tricks on you. It's going to try and talk you out of it. Absolutely. You, you mentioned the, the baked feta pasta. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more to folks who maybe aren't experienced in TikTok and trends and you sort of took that recipe, uh, put your own spin on it. And I think you use like a tofu feta or something like that. Uh, Walk me through that. 
Yeah. So it was just all of a sudden, like you're scrolling TikTok and there's all of these recipe creators who are making their own versions of this baked feta pasta dish. And all of the videos are getting so much engagement because it it just looks so appetizing. Uh, For people who are listening, it's like cherry tomatoes with a block of feta in the middle that's been baked up with like basil and spices. And then you add like cooked pasta to it. So it just absolutely delicious looking. So I saw this and I was like, okay, I'm going to veganize this. And this was actually one of the first recipes that ever went viral on my page. And Lizzo actually commented on it. She said, God bless you. And I veganized it because she's vegan. So basically I looked at it and I'm like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to use tofu. So I used extra firm tofu, added things like nutritional yeast, apple cider vinegar for that kind of like acidity and uh, spices blended it up so it was creamy, put it in the middle of the dish with cherry tomatoes, popped it in the oven, said a little prayer. You're making me hungry. Yes, (laughs) it came out and honestly, like it is bomb. And I don't say that a lot about my own recipes, but it is so good whenever somebody's like, what should I feed like my meat eating family? I'm like, try that recipe because it really is one of those things where you're tasting it and the tofu is so creamy that you're like, how is this? How doesn't this have cheese in it? Yes. (laughs) Fun. That, that gets me thinking about something that I do find very interesting. You know, there are, there are of course, certain vegans that perhaps aren't so keen on, on sort of uh, emulating animal foods, but the majority of vegans are, are, you know, very interested in recreating some of their favorites. And I often see people commenting online, well, you know, why would a, a vegan want to eat something that tastes like meat? And I, and I think that comment sort of, you know, overlooks this idea that just because you're no longer eating meat or perhaps you're reducing meat, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the taste of meat or the experience of those meals that you, you grew up eating. hundred percent. Like the majority of people are not born vegan. We grow up eating meat and cheese as like mainstays in our diet. And then are expected to eat like nourish bowls with zoodles and avocados and be satisfied. Like, of course, I get that comment every time I veganize. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Every single time. And it, it makes me shake my head because it's like people aren't going vegan for the most part because they don't like the taste of meat or cheese. That was certainly not my, my experience. So if you can emulate those flavors for people, the meat and the cheese with plant-based products that taste just as good, if not better, and are better for your health, then it takes down a huge barrier of access to plant-based eating, in my opinion, if not the number one thing. Like if something's stopping someone from going plant-based, like they, they're obsessed with pulled pork sandwiches or something, then here, try the jackfruit. I bet you you'll love it. And here, there's the solution. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. I want to, I want to talk about your sort of on ramp to uh, adopting a a vegan diet and becoming interested in, in plant-based food and and plant-based cooking. And as I was flicking through your book, I do have the ebook copy. I don't have the hard copy yet. I'm waiting on that one. Uh, I, I read at the, the beginning, a little note there to your dad and it was about the oil-free brand muffins. Can you can you tell me what happened there? My dad and I, I spent like seven days recipe testing with my dad at my parents' house. And 
we both love brand muffins, but like not the oil-free kind. So I'm like, it's an oil-free cookbook. We're going to make an oil-free brand muffin recipe. We must have tested 10 different recipes and every single one came out of the oven. It was like a rock. Like if, <laughs> if I could toss it to you, it would hurt like a baseball. Like it was just terrible. Oh, gosh. And I think it's just like the moisture content, the brand, like just suck up anything without the oil. So it was a complete failure. So the book is dedicated to my father, actually, because he's a stage two colon cancer survivor. Like uh, many people, my dad was 100% my like hero growing up. And he had this diagnosis when I was 11 years old. And it was extremely traumatic for me. I mean, he went through the surgery, chemotherapy for several, several months. You're just seeing this person kind of wither away with that. And um, we, after that, went, continued to just eat the meat and dairy. Because at the time, the Canada Food Guide had like your meat and dairy. That's what you should be eating for a healthy diet. And uh, it wasn't until 2015 when the World Health Organization announced that red and processed meat were now classed as group two and group one carcinogens that we started to look at the diet. And I remember, and it's really why I kind of went plant-based, my dad being angry when that news came out because he was like, he felt like so that we had just had this veil over our faces and that we had been lied to. And he had continued eating this meat, which who knows if that actually caused the cancer, but it certainly is not going to help you after having that diagnosis, right? So we all as an immediate family went predominantly plant-based from there. My parents, I say predominantly plant-based, they'll, uh, they'll go out to eat and have like seafood or cheese occasionally. But I then kind of like, I, I always say when people go plant-based, for me, it was like opening up Pandora's box. Like it was like, that was the catalyst, but then you open up Pandora's box and you're like, whoa, there's a lot going on here from an environmental, from an animal welfare perspective and from a health perspective, which is how the whole journey kind of got its role on. Yeah. So you find out that information and you, of course, you would have then started reading other books and, and watching documentaries and just becoming more knowledgeable about all of these aspects that perhaps you hadn't given much consideration to prior. And you are compelled to make changes to your diet. What does that look like? Where do you start? How quickly are you making changes? How are you feeling? And, and, and what were kind of the biggest challenges through that period? So at the time, I was actually working as a radio host up in Northern Ontario, Canada, which is like very small country area. And I lived in like a super small bachelor apartment on my own. And I was like, okay, like I want to go plant-based now. Like you said, I had eaten, read the books like Eat to Live, Dr. Joel Furman, How Not to Die, Michael Greger, watched all the documentaries in like a 24-hour period. So it's like, I'm motivated. How am I going to do this? I remember going on Pinterest and searching the word vegan and just seeing this endless like stream of these nourish bowls with like, like I said earlier, like carved avocados, zucchini spiralized. And I was like, I can't do this. I had grown up eating like meat and dairy every single meal of my day and was probably the unhealthiest eater that I personally knew, but was getting away with it somehow. 
And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to try to figure out how to do this. I looked at what I normally ate throughout the week and started just making really simple plant-based swaps. So like one of my favorite meals growing up was my mom's pasta sauce with ground beef. So instead of using ground beef in the pasta sauce, I tried red lentils instead. This is what I always recommend to people. Look at the food you already like and start thinking about how you can make these simple swaps because it keeps the foundational elements of the diet that you already know and love while also just slowly integrating these plant-based foods. So as I was doing that, I started feeling really good. The number one thing being that as a kid... And up until my early 20s, I was very constipated to the point where when I was 12 years old, my parents took me to the doctor and I was prescribed laxatives. So I was taking the laxatives and then suddenly eating the plant-based diet. What do you know? The constipation relieves itself. And I feel... Yeah, exactly. The fiber. So I'm feeling great. And I'm like, oh my gosh, why isn't anybody talking about this? From a health perspective, it's amazing. From an environmental perspective, it's amazing. And the animals working in radio and having this journalism background, I'm like, I need to start talking about this on a public scale. So that's when the Plant You Instagram account kind of got going. And I started just sharing, like, I did not know how to cook the greenest person to cooking you would ever know. I still say I am not like a chef. Like I am just your home cook. These are the recipes from Carly, your friend, you can do this too. And uh, I started sharing them. And I think that spoke to people because at the time there might not have been a lot of that on there. Right. Definitely. Those, uh, I mean, the, the infographics you mentioned earlier, uh, again, another huge, I think component or uh, reason for your success is is understanding what people are are wanting and simplicity is key. You know, I know myself. I, I often go to Pinterest and look at the the plant based meals and think about what I eat at home, and I think, am I doing this right? <laughs> and 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 don't get me wrong, I have a lot of diversity in my diet. I'm all you know, lots of different colors and stuff, but I have my my staples. And they're on rotation. And so it's not that complicated once I sort of had all of that down pat. And I think you do a really great job of communicating that, that this, you know, it's going to be new, but it doesn't have to be super complicated. You can do it. And on your kind of own journey of going through and 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 making changes and simple swaps and sort of building your confidence, you know, I've I've spoken out about my recommendation and advice to people is to do exactly that is to start to transition nice and slowly. I'm curious, you know, of, of what your view is and what are your recommendations to people that perhaps are coming across the same information that you did want to make these changes? You know, what do you think about like the kind of speed of those changes? It personally took me a year. And I think what I did, it was kind of in phases. So first thing to go was the red meat then like chicken and then dairy and cheese was the last one to go. As most people say, they could never give up cheese, but I promise you, you can. And I always recommend that people do it slowly. Not only because like you said, you have your kind of arsenal of meals that you go through per week. And we're the same thing here. Like I'm making a veggie stir fry over rice or quinoa every week. 
plant diversity. We're using different plants in it every week, but it's the same foundational kind of recipe. And you need to develop that in your repertoire to lean on before you decide that you're committing 100%. And also things just as simple as like the big feta pasta is a great example, knowing that tofu can make into a like a creamy kind of ricotta-like cheese. All these things take time to kind of realize and um, you find your favorite substitutes that you love. And that's okay. It's a journey, not a race. And sustainable sustainable changes over time, I think people will be a lot more successful with adopting a plant-based lifestyle for life rather than diving in and then getting overwhelmed falling off the wagon and then feeling like a failure and quitting. Like that's not helping anybody. And the other factor of that, that I hear all the time from people is that when they first go plant-based, they have stomach upset. And you've got to think about so many of us grew up eating literally no fiber, including myself. So now you're eating plants, which are full of fiber, meat and cheese have none. And it's just going to be natural that your gut microbiome needs to adjust to that. Like it's, it's going to be like, what's going on. And I experienced a bit of this. I remember like three months in now I was really kind of like eating plant-based meals in abundance. I ended up having to go to the doctor for like the opposite issue. So it's like you're, and she, she, at the time, I was so grateful that she at the time was like, you know what? I think you're just, uh, you're just adjusting here. I don't think that there's anything uh, going on. And thank goodness. I just, stuck it out because the doctor said that. And now, obviously, six years later, uh, my digestion is fantastic. But that's another reason that I don't ever suggest that people just switch overnight unless they're entirely motivated, which I think sometimes happens as well. Yeah, that's such a good point about your body being able to adjust over time. And I had uh, Professor Christopher Gardner on from Stanford Uni, and he actually recently conducted a study with his colleagues and they they looked at increasing fiber in a group of people. And they did see that some people who increased their fiber very quickly in a short period of time didn't respond so well. And you're right. Often people think, well, oh, maybe plants are not for me and then just revert back. But it's not that. It's just that your microbiome and your physiology is just not equipped to handle that food yet. But you, you, you can step it out and you will get there. I'm interested when you were making those changes... And, and this may be your, from your experience when you were making the changes or perhaps from what you hear in your community, what do you think the, the kind of toughest meal is to turn plant-based? Is it breakfast? Is it lunch, dinner or snacks? I think dinner is the hardest for sure for people. I think it's quite easy to look at the prospect of like having oatmeal for breakfast or cereal for breakfast, right? Those are very easy to make plant-based with a plant-based milk. Lunch, you might have like a salad or smoothie and hummus and dip or whatever else. Like it's quite easy. That dinner, it's like steaks, wings. At least when I was growing up, that was like roast beef. So when people are faced with the prospect and there's a huge, huge, huge social element here that I don't want to forget to talk about because that was one of the most difficult parts for me. It was like, okay, I've, I've handled this at home, but like dinners out holiday dinners, like Thanksgiving and stuff, the prospect of having to face your entire family and be like, oh, I'm the vegan and I'm bringing my own little meal here and whichever else was very, very intimidating to me. 
and probably kept me from like going fully vegan for a while because I just felt like it's easier for me to just go out for dinner and have like a non-plant-based meal than make like a fuss and ask for like the restaurant to accommodate me because five or six years ago, there weren't like Beyond Meat Burgers on every menu. (laughs) So the dinners are the toughest because there's they're very much meat-based, I think, in North American culture. And then that social element is very difficult to kind of get over, I found. Yeah, no, I definitely uh, I was I was in the same boat there. And I remember, you know, often I would go to a, a family event or something with friends, and that would be where I wasn't having the completely plant-based meal. And then I would just focus on it at home and slowly but surely build the confidence and, you know, be able to to answer the question of well, why are you eating this way? And and all of those things that perhaps you don't want to to kind of have to focus your energy on at the start when you're trying to work out what cashew cheese is and <laughs> and things like that. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. These changes that you were making, you, you sort of spoke to this a little bit, but and the foods in your your book today, these are quite different to the foods you were eating as a kid. Am I am I right that you actually grew up on a farm? Yes, a hobby farm. So like we weren't, we didn't have like pigs that we were slaughtering and eating, but we had chickens that we ate eggs from. We had horses, tons of animals always in and out of the house. I mean, my sister's a vet tech now and my dad always super passionate about animals and like would be rescuing birds and stuff. But then we would sit down at the dinner table and be eating steak. It's, it's very weird to think about now. But yes, like my diet growing up, I would say was very meat-based. Like even at lunch, I remember going to high school and like it was cold cuts of salami on like focaccia bread <laughs> and now I know looking back, like no wonder I was constipated and not feeling great all the time. And I just think that uh, there was a real lack of education because my parents, they're smart people and they just thought they were doing their best. Like even my mom, I remember it was like glass of milk at dinner. Like you got to get that down. You as a woman, osteoporosis, all of that, like strong bones, you're developing. It was like, you couldn't leave the table until I finished a glass of dairy milk. And now if you made me drink a glass of dairy milk, I don't, that, I don't know if anything could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> and in, what about your taste buds? Were you sort of enthusiastic about fruits and veggies and beans, all these different foods that are, you're now eating regularly? When you were making these changes, were you kind of open to just embracing these foods or did you have a little bit of doubt as to whether you would enjoy them? I was the worst. Like my college friends can't believe what has happened because I came to university packed full of a freezer of mini pizzas, Eggo waffles, uh, like pizza pockets were my thing. So yes, like at the time when I was transitioning to a plant-based lifestyle, I really felt intimidated because I did not really like vegetables. Like I might like bell peppers. That was kind of as far as it went. So I just slowly started introducing them. And you know what I did was one of those, like I love pasta. I still love pasta. So lasagna and like a bolognese pasta sauce I could live off of. But I remember one day and the recipe is in the book. It's called uh, vegan bolognese. I had a food processor and I just put mushrooms, onion, garlic, spinach, all these things in the food processor, added it to the pan to make like almost like a meat mince and then added sauce and like my favorite pasta sauce. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm eating mushrooms. Like I could not stand mushrooms. And slowly over that, I feel like it was more of a mental block because now I'm like obsessed with vegetables and I'll try anything. And isn't that weird? Because I didn't transition to plant-based eating until my early twenties. So like, you've got to think that my kind of preferences had been established, but now it's just completely different. And I think it's, it's just about kind of testing your limits over time, integrating one thing at a time, 
trying a new plant every week, trying them in different ways. I have these great uh, walnut mushroom tacos in my cookbook that I feel like are very like meaty. So if you're not a mushroom, someone who likes mushrooms, I don't think you would know mushrooms are in it. So if you look at different ways to cook things, you'll surprise yourself, I think. Yeah, there's a, a few recipes that I've kind of bookmarked to try. And one of them was the tangy potato salad. Yeah. And and when I was reading over that, that was getting me thinking about, you know, when I was a child, uh, white potato, you know, it was okay. It was kind of no offense to my mom. It was kind of just served up with a bit of black pepper on it. It was, it was, it was, you know, I could eat it, but I wasn't like loving it like I am with potatoes that I eat today. And when I was looking at your recipe and looking at some of the ingredients that you are adding to bring the flavor, I think that's a, a really interesting thing for people to think about is that how do you, how do you actually bring flavor to some of these foods that may be a little bland if you were just to eat them by themselves? Yeah, that recipe in particular, it actually has white beans as the base of the sauce, which if you're not a bean fan, you would be surprised again. White beans pureed can make a beautifully beautiful velvety sauce and can actually be pureed in soups to make them creamy. So there's two ways you can get your beans in without actually having to look them in the face, I guess. But to kind of enhance flavors of these plant-based recipes and perhaps pay like pay respect to the food you used to eat. You definitely want to look at what you love about those meat-based things. So if you look at like a mayo-based potato salad, you probably like the tongue feel of the creaminess of it. You like the acidity that comes from perhaps like the dill and the spices used. So you want to look at when you're compiling a plant-based recipe, how you can kind of emulate all of these factors without using the animal products. So the acidity is huge. Like I find a lot of recipes when I try them, they can follow, like taste a little flat. You add a little bit of apple cider vinegar or lemon juice. It pipes something right up immediately. Salt is a huge one. Obviously we don't want people like drinking salt. It's not the best thing for you, but uh, a little bit of salt can go a long way to even enhancing the flavors of natural plants. So like you're going to something like asparagus and you put like a vegan cheese sauce on it. If that's salted properly, you're going to be able to taste the flavor of the asparagus more present. And so salt, acid, heat, if you like spice, uh, these are the classic kind of elements, your pepper, your red pepper flakes. And I always tell people, people are always like, oh, like plant-based eating, that's got to be restrictive. I truly feel, and everybody I talk to who has gone plant-based successfully feels the same way. I have never eaten such a wide abundance of foods and cuisines and different types of recipes until after I went plant-based. And it's because then you start really exploring the potential of plants, which is just enormous. And then you build up kind of your, your spice jars, right? Spices are just, just incredible for you and incredible for the flavoring of your food. And at the end of the day, it's like, if you like ribs, you probably liked the barbecue sauce, which can be flavored and go on something else to kind of emulate a rib, right? <laughs> All of these ingredients, do you tend to just buy at a sort of normal grocery store or do you have to go to a fancy grocery store to get things? What would you kind of recommend for someone who's 
you know, new to this space? So I still live in a very small city in Ontario, Canada. We do not have a Whole Foods here. I am shopping at a regular grocery store each week. And if not, I would say that Asian grocery stores in particular have more wide abundance of vegetables than I've ever seen anywhere have before. So most people, depending on where they're from, should be able to access the foundational ingredients that are used in most delicious plant-based meals, which is going to be your fresh produce, like all of your delicious vegetables from bell peppers to mushrooms to eggplant, your canned beans or your dry beans if you have a pressure cooker, uh, tofu if you like tofu food, tempeh. And we also like plant-based yogurts. If you have access to them, you can make your own nut milks at home, but those are also at most mainstream grocery stores now. So one element of like where I kind of got my start with plant you was I was really whole food based, right? So never kind of using things like mock meats or cheeses in recipes. I do now occasionally, and we enjoy those things. But I think at the end of the day, a whole foods plant-based diet is the way to go from both a health perspective, a money perspective, and it's accessible to most people. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about budget and your food budget you know, as you were working at that stage, but you were a young professional and I'm sure you were thinking about how much you were spending on food. Did you notice if there was any significant increase or decrease in terms of the amount of money you were spending each week to to eat plant-based compared to your previous diet? For sure. So I was definitely living paycheck to paycheck at that time, working as a radio host and on my own. So it was definitely substantial, the difference. And you'll hear people say that plant-based eating is expensive. And I think it can be, but I think we have seen grocery prices in general climb. But to me, there was nothing more expensive than buying like beef and chicken breasts and cheese each week. Like especially cheese was so expensive, like cheddar cheese or specialty cheeses. So when you replace those things with canned beans, which or can be scents, really, or dry beans, even cheaper. And you're making the foundation of your meals something like quinoa or rice and and vegetables. I certainly noticed a decrease. Now, I don't want to say that a plant-based diet is affordable for everyone because there's people in food deserts who don't necessarily have access to the vegetables and the array that we do um, where you and I live. But if for, the, for most people, I think they would find that there would be a reduction in their monthly grocery bills if they switched to a plant-based lifestyle. You mentioned the word restriction earlier. And I think sometimes there's this idea that if you adopt a plant-based diet, there's going to be all these crazy, scary nutrient deficiencies. And I'm sure that when you were doing your early research, you would have had some questions because you probably jumped on Google and, and very quickly, that's what you'll see. There will be a, a very you know scary list of things that you need to, to be worried about. Now, most of these are very sort of easily planned for most people. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how did you kind of navigate that? And from a supplement point of view today, what does that look like for you? To be completely transparent, for the first couple of years, I probably wasn't supplementing anything, which I would not recommend. You need your B12. 
But I think the fortified foods I was eating in terms of the plant-based milks and stuff probably had enough B12 to get me by. It wasn't until I came across this Instagram account called Plant Proof that I started to get really educated on the needs of people who are vegan or plant-based. And I think really you do the best job that I've seen online from an evidence-based perspective of helping people kind of navigate that. I think think whether you're plant-based or not, nutrition science is so confusing. Like it just is. I ended up enrolling because I was just so enraptured in helping people go plant-based. I took a one-year holistic health coach course and um, never called myself a health coach because I'm like, I still don't know anything. Like when you actually, I heard you talking about uh how you interpret studies and the amount of time you go through each research paper and stuff. And I'm like, thank goodness he's doing that because I don't know where the rest of us would be interpreting headlines. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I definitely have leaned on your recommendations and then also getting them from like someone like nutritionfacts.org, which I know it can, it can be biased as well in some cases, but looking at reputable sources for kind of like your B12 recommendations, I ran into an issue with vitamin D a couple of years ago, uh, probably a combination of eating plant-based and then also living in Canada where there's sunlight for like four months per year. So Other than that, I feel like, what do you recommend to people who are on a plant-based diet that they be supplementing if they're fully plant-based? I think B12's the the obvious one. Uh, Omega-3s, you can can access those through your food. And there's a whole lot of debate out there about whether you should supplement them or not. That's not fully settled. Um, Iodine for some people, if they're not eating seaweeds and things like that. But you know, beyond that, then it becomes a very individual kind of level. And and vitamin D3, as you mentioned, I think if you're in, in a sort of northern latitude, um, particularly if you have dark skin and you're not getting regular sun exposure, that's one to, to keep an, an eye on. Um, but yeah, thank you for your kind words. I know that the more I learn in this space, uh, the more I actually realize that I don't know. So this is, it is confusing for everyone. You know, we, as much as we do know, there's still plenty more that, that needs to be sort of investigated and explored, which keeps it interesting, right? What about when you were, uh, you were making these changes and you were eating out or perhaps eating out now, which I assume is, is getting a little bit easier, definitely is in Australia, but what would you kind of recommend or what advice would you give to someone who perhaps goes out and, and there isn't a whole lot of plant-based options on the menus, but they do want to socialize with their friends and their family? So I always recommend if you're going to a restaurant, somebody else is choosing, take a look at the menu beforehand so that you're prepared for what you want to order. I think that takes a lot of the fear out of kind of that social event, right? If there's nothing on the menu, you can give the restaurant a call. If you don't feel like you're confident enough to do that, I then go to the sides of the restaurant menu. So you would be surprised. The biggest steakhouses usually have a beautiful baked potato and a garden salad that you could order. And personally for me, like if I know I'm going out with friends and they've chosen the restaurant, I don't have like high hopes that this is going to be the best meal of my life. So I go in knowing that and just enjoy the good time. So if it's like a combination of like three things off the sides, 
menu, I'm good. But what I found when I went plant-based is like before going plant-based, my favorite restaurant was like a steakhouse. After going plant-based, my favorite restaurants now are like Indian Thai food. And what I find is like these restaurants already naturally have plant-based meals on the menu. Like they'll usually have like a red Thai curry that um, either has tofu, chicken, beef in it. Like you can order any of them. And they're cooking the food from scratch in these restaurants. Like if you're going for authentic Thai or Indian food, they're not putting like a microwave meal in, which I think is where some people can come into trouble because that's already done. So I always like Indian or Thai are my go-tos. And what I always recommend to anybody who's like first going plant-based, because then you're also not like going and again, ordering like the veggie burger for the 50th time off the menu. So convince your friends to like go to like something different yeah, if you can. Mate, that's great advice. Something that that I've noticed in your work, both online and in your book, is that you you do have this emphasis on minimizing food wastage. And I have to say, my favorite segment of your show is scrappy cooking. And I actually need you to say welcome back to Scrappy Cooking. It's like my <laughs> most favorite thing to hear on TikTok. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get you to do that. But can you also uh, just explain this series of videos for anyone who hasn't seen it? Why is it important? And what is the, the message that you're trying to deliver? Okay, I'll start with the Scrappy Cooking line. So it's like, Welcome back to Scrappy Cooking. <laughs> I can't say it without laughing right now. That's the, uh, the the radio host and you coming out there. It's all making sense now. <laughs> so basically, this started so randomly and it has now become what I am most known for. And it's my by far my favorite thing that I get to do for sure. So basically I threw up an orange peel candy recipe one day, and these were already things we were doing in our home because I don't like to waste food um, from both an environmental perspective and a money perspective. So I threw up this orange peel candy recipe. People went nuts. So I'm like, oh, okay. People are actually interested in the, uh, in reducing their food waste for whatever reason. Just started to churn out the episodes. I think Yesterday, I put out my 39th scrappy cooking episode, which is probably within like six months time. So that's quite a few video episodes. So basically what they are is it's, I just look at commonly wasted food. So whether it's scraps, like something like broccoli stems, or like if you buy a whole cabbage and don't know how to go through it, I'm going to tell you how to use it. So they're really, really fun recipe videos that are going to help people. What what I always say to people, they're like, oh, like reducing food waste. I'm like, from a perspective of these videos, I just want them to have an impact on people looking at the food that they're buying each week and how they can use it. Because 40 to 50% of edible food in the United States goes to waste, which contributes to methane, which is not good for our environment. But beyond that, I think a lot of us kind of aimlessly head to the grocery store each week and buy a bunch of stuff. And then it ends up in the garbage, which is just devastating. So that's my whole goal with the series. Like I want people to start thinking about what they're buying and how they can use it. And then also save money too, because like if you're buying broccoli by weight each week, uh, you're paying for the stems, which are the heavier part than the florets. So we might as well eat them because they're nutrient dense and they're delicious as well. They kind of taste like asparagus. Yeah. I love the cabbage steak 
one that you did a little a little while ago and that that made me realize because cabbage it, it, it is pretty perishable it doesn't la- seem to last that long particularly if it's kind of not in the fresh produce section of your fridge or if you don't have one of those so i thought that was great and the other one that i really liked which really spoke to me is the smoothie bombs with wilted spinach oh yeah Everybody buys a box of spinach every week. And then it like, it's like Friday and like, you can kind of like you open it up and it's like kind of get getting bad. Right. And you're like, Ooh, I don't want to put this in a salad because spinach has a smell when it goes bad. So you can blend that up with water, put it in an ice cube tray and put it in your smoothies. I promise you won't taste any funkiness. And you've now really super powered your smoothies with some spinach as well. But that happens to everyone. I think. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you are looking for neat ways to to make use of your scraps, then definitely check out Scrappy Cooking. You'll you'll certainly, at the very least, be very entertained. Tell me about the book and and how it sort of came about. Were you pitching for book deals, or you know, did did someone contact you? I'm I'm really interested in in kind of the birth of the book. So it actually started with a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Will Balswitz. So let me tell you this story. I was following Dr. B and I was like obsessed with his content. I'm like, this is, this needs to, again, be spread to the world. I'm liking all his posts, sharing them in my stories, telling everybody to follow him. So we kind of became friends from there. And uh, he says to me one day in an Instagram DM, he's like, oh, like when, when do you have a cookbook coming out? I'm like a cookbook. Like I'm, I'm not writing a cookbook. I'm not a cook. And he's like, "Mm, you need to make a cookbook. So I was like, okay. And he's like, let me call you up one day. So he calls me and he tells me all about the book process. At this time, he probably had like was halfway through his manuscript for Fiber Fueled, which for anybody listening, you should get your hands on uh, incredible book all about your gut microbiome. And uh, he gave me the best advice. And I got off that call. I'm like, yeah, I want to write a cookbook. So very odd. Three days later, I got a direct message from a literary agent. It was the weirdest thing. And uh, she was like, have you ever thought about writing a cookbook? And I'm like, what is happening? (laughs) And uh, her name's Wendy Sherman. She is like the light of my book life because I am just so grateful for her. Having a literary agent, if you're ever thinking of writing a book, is is a really, it's a godsend. So basically then I didn't have a proposal or anything, which is not typically how the book process starts. Typically you write like a book proposal and then you pitch to agents. So she kind of worked with me. She's like, okay, this is how you kind of craft a book proposal and uh, let me know what you're thinking. And then that kind of got the ball rolling. I remember I really struggled with how I wanted the book to look. And I don't know why I did because eventually I just had like a brain download one day and I'm like, it needs to be the infographics that I was doing on Instagram. That's what it needs to be. I don't know why I was trying so hard for it to be something different than that. Like I felt like it needed to be like most cookbooks, like these beautiful, elegant photos. And I'm like, wait a second, no. So that's what I wrote my proposal based on was this infographic concept. And for anybody listening who is like, what the heck is an infographic? It's basically just where ingredients are at the top of 
the dish. So you can see which ingredients are in each uh, recipe. And then the final dish is below in like a very clean background. And I think from a visual perspective, it allows people to just um, see from an eye's glance exactly what goes into a dish and how to make it. So from there, the book got, as you know, the process, the book got kind of um, auctioned off. And I was able to get a publishing deal with Hachette Go. And now, I mean, it's two years later. That was two years ago, two and a half years ago. And now I'm sitting across from you talking about the book and it's coming out, which is wild. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, and the, the 140 odd recipes that ended up being included in the book, you know, how did you choose them? How did you go about the kind of planning of what you would include, what you wouldn't? So I knew right away when I was like planning, once I had nailed down this infographic concept, I knew that I wanted to have recipes for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, and everything so that people could pick up this cookbook and not be plant-based and be set, like not have to go anywhere else. So I kind of just looked at what we typically ate in a week. We've got overnight oats, smoothies, pancakes, all sorts of salads, soups, vegan meatloaf, wings, tacos. So like I wanted to cover a full breadth of meals, um, anything that somebody would normally be craving if they're craving meat, like chicken wings. We've got beautiful cauliflower wings in there, uh, jackfruit, uh, pulled pork. If you like pulled pork, meatloaf, I've got a vegan meatloaf in there. So I wanted I really wanted this to be almost like a manual for somebody who was going plant-based and that they would be completely taken care of. Mm -hmm. Cauliflower wings. Yeah. I don't know anyone that doesn't like those. We have, we have cauliflower wings on our menu at, at eat in our restaurant in Sydney and it's the most popular thing on the entire menu. <laughs> oh, I, I have no doubt. I feel like cauliflower wings win over anybody, right? They're so good. <laughs> Is there a particular recipe that that you have a, a soft spot for, perhaps one that, that might be a little more sentimental? For sure. So speaking of cauliflower wings, the cauliflower wings in my cookbook are a little bit different. And it's a recipe that my dad and I came up with. It's actually uh, cauliflower that has been parboiled. So boiled really quickly in a vegetable broth to kind of enhance the flavor. And then we do dip the rice rice paper, actually, rather than like a batter in, uh, in vegetable broth as well, and then wrap them in the rice paper. So it creates like this very realistic skin on the cauliflower. Then you broil them and toss them in hot sauce. They're so good. And they're like no cauliflower wing that I have ever tried in my life. And uh, my dad and I had to test those quite a few times because you had to get like the, there's a lot of timing elements, right? you got to parboil the cauliflower for the perfect amount of time and then wrap them in the rice paper and then broil them for Exactly. I think it's like eight minutes or something. And, uh, but I've got it all written down for anybody who's interested. But once we had them, we were both like, I remember sitting across from each other and like nodding because it's like one of those things where you're like, yeah, like this is perfect. So that one is probably my favorite recipe in the cookbook and one that like means a lot to me. Yeah. You, your dad must be pretty proud of, of everything that you've done with this. He, he's got to be excited for a couple of days time when you can finally see this on the shelf. 
Yeah. My parents are both like super excited for me. My mom's like a little jealous that I dedicated the book to my dad, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I'm so grateful for like, they were so supportive through the process. And truthfully, you know, like it's like a village to write a book. Like truthfully, like you you need help. So mm-hmm. you can dedicate the next one to her, perhaps. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> so, all of these recipes are, are oil free. Firstly, you're very brave for tackling the, the topic of oil, heavily kind of debated out there, but we don't need to go into that debate. I definitely um, recommend to people who are looking to lose weight in particular to think about calorie density and oil-free meals are a great way of lowering the, the calorie density of your meals. They really are. My question for you here is, can you help explain to all of us what is the key to oil-free cooking, because I think there is this idea out there that it it, it it cannot be done without veggies tasting bland and things sticking to the pan. What's the what's the, the sort of keys to making oil-free meals taste good? One thing I want to say is that like my philosophy of oil has definitely changed over the past two years. And um I think that this cookbook is going to aid people in the fact that it doesn't use oil. And I think in North America, we use a lot of oil and every recipe starts with oil. So you can start any recipe in the cookbook with oil, but the easiest way to reduce your consumption of oil, throw broth or water in the pan instead. I promise you, if you cook something on medium to low heat, you are not going to notice a heck of a lot of difference if you start sauteing onions and garlic, which is what most recipes seem to start with, in a little broth or water instead of oil. And even without those water or broth elements, you'll notice after a few minutes of cooking something like onions that they'll actually lubricate the pan with their juices in no time. So that's the number one thing. It's like, it really doesn't have to be intimidating. You'll just notice every recipe online, it's like, add three tablespoons of oil to the pan before you're making a soup. It's just not necessary in all cases. The other big thing is baking, right? Like I think uh, naturally we add a lot of oil to baking to kind of inject something like a banana bread or muffins with moisture. But you can really do that same thing using a whole food like mashed pumpkin or applesauce. It's going to have that moisture content. It has the nutrient density of whatever you're putting in it. And it's going to turn out delicious. Like I have a pumpkin banana bread in there that I don't think, I don't think you would ever know that it doesn't contain oil and simple kitchen tools like parchment paper, silicone baking sheets are your best friends. If you're trying to cook without oil, because then they prevent sticking, right? Uh, Those are big ones as well. But once you start cooking without oil, if that's what you want to do, you'll notice that it's so, so easy. And what I found over the years is like when I, definitely when I first went plant-based coming from reading like Dr. Joel Furman and Michael Greger's books, I was definitely on the oil-free train. But now that I've developed these elements of not cooking with oil, I find that like the majority of recipes I make just naturally, I don't cook with oil because I don't feel like I need it, but there's some things that do need it. Right. And that's okay. But I think, um, from in North America, we use it a lot and it's worth learning how to cook without it if you want to, because your food's not going to taste much different in most cases. Totally agree. And and the other kind of example that I saw in your book was the use of avocado in the brownies. 
yeah, avocado is amazing. <laughs> they're like, you know, like nature's butter and they're so creamy. And I've got these fudgy chocolate avocado brownies in the book, which have like a full avocado in them. And they add this fudgy element. I took them up to um, my cottage one time and like gave them to our neighbors who are the farthest thing from plant-based. Like they're scared of vegan food <laughs> and they're, they chowed down all the brownies. And I'm like, oh, you get, guess what was in? those when I told them it was avocado they're like no <laughs> but uh, avocado is wonderful to add a fudgy element to bake goods for sure I, I need to kind of watch myself with baking I have uh this habit of just eating every all all I would eat all of those brownies in like a day so um oh I'm the same <laughs> it's like it's like you cook it and then it's sitting out like on your counter and you're yeah. staring at it it's like I'm waking up oh a brownie for breakfast terrible <laughs> yeah so I, I need to make sure that there's there's people around to to consume some of them uh with regards to the pan, I'm just curious, do you use any kind of particular, Not you don't need to mention brands or anything, but is there a particular type of pan that you think is best for cooking in? I have all sorts being a food blogger, but I think most of the time I use a ceramic pan, I think is what um, you can probably think of the brand name that I'm talking about, but I use it quite often. And like a good nonstick pan... I don't know much about the whole toxicity of Teflon and stuff, but if you're oil-free cooking, you do need, I know there's like green pans and stuff like that that you can get with safe nonstick coating. And what about other appliances that you kind of recommend for making these quick, delicious, tasty recipes that are in your book? Uh, I know that you list out a few of them, the, the blender and the food processor, If people are thinking about kind of setting up their kitchen and perhaps they don't have much of this stuff, what are what are the the ones that you think are sort of best to invest in? Blender. A blender, and you don't have to get the most expensive blender on the market, but if you can get even like one of those smaller little bullet blenders, they do a tremendous job at blending something like soaked cashews into cream. I think if you're going to be making your own sauces and stuff, a blender is quite essential to have from a plant-based perspective. One good pan, a chef's knife, all you need is a chef's knife. And uh, I also really like silicone baking sheets. Like parchment papers is great too, but like if you have an oven and have baking sheets, silicone liners are incredible. If you have the funds, an air fryer is like the greatest invention of the 20th century. (laughs) Um, I love my air fryer. And what do you like to cook in the air fryer? Like cauliflower wings, French fries. Like this is a thing, potatoes. People think potatoes or fries are so bad for you. Fries, like fries, if you just uh, make some French fries by chopping up like a russet potato, you can soak them in some vinegar and water if you want to make them extra crispy, but that's not even necessary. Toss in your favorite spices and a little sea salt and bake those up. Or if you have an air fryer, you can put them in the oven too, though. There's nothing Delicious. better. Yeah, they don't, they, don't, they don't have to be deep fried in a deep fryer, do they? No. What about the the immersion blender? You know that that was actually 
I realized that I've, I've been using an immersion blender since I was a kid. I think that was probably like the first type of blender that I ever used to, to make milkshakes, but I just didn't know it was called an immersion blender. When would, when would you use that? Immersion blenders are incredible. You can use them for so many things, but I use mine most of the time for soups. So like if you're making, say, a creamy vegan broccoli cheddar soup, like carrots, cashews, and potato in a pot, and you boil that up until it's softened, rather than having to transfer that to like a countertop blender, that's where your immersion blender dipping that in there and doing the job is going to serve you. Immersion blenders are also amazing for salad dressings. Like you can, if you have kind of like a deep measuring cup, you can whip up a salad dressing into a really smooth consistency with an immersion blender. And they're very affordable. Like immersion blenders are not the most expensive, certainly less expensive than your countertop blenders. Do you have a go-to salad dressing that you love? My favorite salad dressing is actually made of silken tofu and it's a ranch salad dressing. And you would be surprised like you add the silken tofu with a couple of select spices. I think it's like oregano and garlic powder, some sea salt and apple cider vinegar. And it is just like the best ranch you have ever had. And also it makes an amazing dip, like speaking of cauliflower wings. And then you think about it and it's like, that's a high protein salad dressing right there. So that's probably my favorite. My go-to would be like a balsamic. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of the balsamic or a balsamic glaze on stuff. Big fan of that as well. Yeah, yum. If, if someone's listening to all of this and thinking... Gosh, is this going to to take hours and hours of time? How much time are you investing into preparing food and, and making food kind of on a on a daily basis? And with all of the recipes that are in your book, what's the kind of typical time that it would take for someone to kind of whip them up? As a food blogger, I'm obviously spending a lot more time in the kitchen than most people. But from a recipe perspective in the book, I would say they're all completely entry level and could be the majority of them could probably be whipped together in under 20 minutes. Some are going to take a long, little longer, but it's just a matter of kind of like leaving it to boil on your stovetop or putting it in the oven, right? Like something like a lasagna takes a little bit to bake, but I want to go back to the point of kind of like a couple of things we mentioned earlier. I am not a chef. Like I still don't regard myself as a chef. I see some chefs on TikTok and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like it, it puts me back down to earth. And I am like the normalist person, average cook, did not grow up cooking with any skill set. If I can do this, I promise you, I promise you that you can cook what I am cooking. And I do think my food is delicious. That's that's the one part. The other part I want to uh, go back to that we talked about earlier, because I just think it's so massively important, is this factor of like developing this repertoire of meals that you can can lean on, right? Like you're going to find really like you're making chicken, say you like chicken curry right now. And that's kind of the thing that you're going through every weeknight. I promise you a plant-based curry will be just as delicious and quicker to cook because you don't have to cook chicken and then also worry about it and um, not being cooked in the salmonella. Like that was a big part of also, um, finding the confidence in plant-based cooking was like, you don't have to really worry about 
food contamination to the level that you do when you're dealing with something like meat, which is very freeing. I said to someone the other day, like, you, it's it's hard not to be able to save a plant-based meal unless you're baking. Like a soup, you taste it and you're like, oh, something's off. You can play with the ingredients or whichever else. Tofu, you taste it and you're like, mm, you can you can save that, right? So I encourage people to feel empowered, get messy in the kitchen, doesn't have to be time-consuming. You can do it. Talking of chicken and salmonella, this is bringing back memories for me. It's, it's it's kind of making me laugh. And my mom did cook me good food and she's probably listening to this, but she, I had this thing when I was little, I just went completely off chicken. I just could not eat chicken. And it was, it was because of a few times where mom would make these chicken enchiladas. And for some reason, they weren't fully cooked. And so I was always very reluctant if chicken was on the, the menu, I would, I would sort of send it back to the chef being mom and say, let's try something else. <laughs> so let's say I'm running late from gym. I'm coming home at 7.30 at night and I'm starving and, and I just want to cook something super quick, nourishing before it gets too late. What recipe am I jumping into? So I have this incredible tempeh stir fry, which like we make multiple times a week. Tempeh is this incredible, if you don't know what it is, it's like fermented soy. So it's really great for your gut health. It has more of a meaty texture and flavor, in my opinion, than tofu does without a lot of work. So chop up some tempeh. You don't really, you just need to make sure it's heated. You don't really need to stress about cooking it. It's not going to do the same thing your mom's chicken did to you. And throw that in a pan with some green peas, bell peppers, and onions, a little soy sauce, and hoisin. Stir that, stir fry that up. You can serve it literally over anything. So you could make some uh, rice vermicelli noodles by just soaking those for five minutes, ramen noodles, rice, quinoa, whatever grain you have on hand. And you've just created probably in less than 15 to 20 minutes, a super nutrient dense, delicious, high in protein plant-based meal. Gosh, between that and the potato salad and the portobello mushroom steak and the the uh, chocolate avocado brownies, I've got a few things to go and try and, and report back, uh, which I will do. Um, Carly, thank you so much. I know that this book is going to be a great success. You're incredible. The book is a masterpiece and I will certainly be gifting a copy to plenty of my friends and, and my mom. Um, <laughs> where, where can people get it and how can they find and, and connect with you online? So we're in a bit of a unique position that the Plant You community has just wrapped their arms around me and pre-ordered so many copies of this book that it's forecasted to actually run out of stock at most retailers shortly after it's out, uh, which is coming out this week. And so what I would suggest to people, you can still get your hands on a copy. Please, please, please shop local if you can. Not only are you going to get yourself a copy of the book, but gosh, those local bookstores need it more than ever after the past two years and everything that's gone on. If you're looking to find me on any of the social media platforms, my handle is always plant you. And Simon, I just have so much gratitude for you having me on here and for your listenership. You have just really had such an impact on the plant-based space and it's truly an honor. My pleasure. And 
just quickly, the majority of the listeners are based in the US, but there are plenty from the UK and from Canada and from Australia. Where can they buy it online or do they need to wait until it's in their country? Yes. So there's some distribution. So Book Depository has some copies. So I know a lot of Australians have been ordering from Book Depository in the UK. I think you can order from Book Depository and Amazon UK. And then Canada, you got your Indigo and your Amazon Canada. And then in the US, there's tons of local bookstores that'll have it in stock. So if you're wherever you are, you can go to IndieBound and look at what local bookstores are around you if one doesn't come to mind. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take. Probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutraKind. This is a product I formulated for NutraKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron. The right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. And use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at plantproof.com. And if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to nutrikind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.